0: Hello, friends, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Tennessee History, Past, Present, and Future, a new podcast project about our beautiful state of Tennessee and the cool stuff that's happened, is happening, and could happen in it. My name is Brayden Weaver, and I'll be your guide during this audio portal through time. In this opening episode, we'll begin in the year 1772 to explore what some call America's first frontier, what was the beginnings of Tennessee, and how it became the 16th state to join the Union. Before we start the program, I'd like to give you a rundown of what you can expect from this podcast. So, time is a tricky thing. I think it's arguable to say that history is being made every second, right? History is being made by you listening to me speak. So even the future will be history one day, right? Right. So, with that in mind, each episode of Tennessee History, Past, Present, and Future will focus on one aspect of Tennessee's existence, and that aspect's historical impact in that time period. Am I being clear? No? Sorry, I'm new to this. For example, and maybe as a little sneak peek for what's to come, the next episode will focus on life in modern-day Tennessee, and after that, perhaps an episode on the likelihood of a tricentennial park in the year 2096. You know, just planning ahead. If you can't tell, I really like where I live. I'm Nashville born and raised, and I couldn't be prouder of my home turf, but recently I've taken some interest in learning more about where I really come from. My goal is to peel back just a few layers to the question of what it means to be a Tennessean, both 300 years ago and from now on. Alright, I think that's enough preface, let's get into the goods. I hope any questions you have may get ironed out as you listen, but please understand that I don't have all the answers related to the stories and historical figures I'm about to tell you about. In fact, I have hardly any answers, and that's kind of what this podcast is all about, to inspire us to learn together. Let's get going. Welcome to the year 1772, a long time ago, 244 years to be exact, and our landscape obviously looked drastically different than it does today. It's peaceful here. More primitive. Not yet touched by permanent civilization. Allow me to set the scene a little bit to really delve into what the first frontiersman saw and felt. We're looking at the sunrise over the tops of the misty, you could almost say smoky, mountains, to the east. A reminder, it's 1772, and we are not yet the United States. In fact, most of the land that makes up modern-day Tennessee was territory claimed by the colony called North Carolina, which later gives us the name Washington County. However, since during this time we were still under British rule, New World settlers who lived on the East Coast were forbidden from crossing the Appalachian mountain range and spreading west. The British government had a filing cabinet full of treaties and compromises that they had arranged with hostile parties from across the mountains, and King George III didn't want any of his colonists disrupting the very fragile perception of peace. Anyway, we'll get more to this later. Let's get back to the beauty of the undisturbed Tennessee wilderness. We're looking at the sunrise over the tops of the yes smoky mountains towering over us to the east. Deep green forests and soft fertile fields sprawled westward into the mainland, fulfilling many settlers' visions of manifest destiny and encouraging those brave enough to find a plot of land and stake their own claim. These families were the definition of trailblazers. Adults, likely in the front, hacking through the growth, leading horse-drawn carts full of supplies and children through stumpy, rocky nothingness. Some, like the Donaldson party, took flatboats downriver to secure lands in what is now Nashville for the state of North Carolina, but most were caravans of families carving their way into luscious East Tennessee for new fortunes. Needless to say, This was not an easy lifestyle. Upon finding a suitable plot of land, the real toil began. Trees needed toppling, fields needed clearing, and the property needed evaluating. Men built, hunted, farmed, and traded. Women did everything else, from cooking to crafting to largely raising the children themselves, often being left alone for months at a time to fend for themselves while their husbands were away conducting business. Everything had to be made by hand, everything crafted from scratch. As a side note, for an incredible perspective of what a pioneer woman experienced on the frontier, I highly recommend checking out Trials of the Earth by Mary Mann Hamilton. I admit her experiences weren't in Tennessee, but down in the Delta, and she lived nearly 100 years later than where we are now, but her memoir still shows some of the unbelievable hardships of the frontier lifestyle. Anyway, before too long, there were homes built, then churches, then town squares, greatly resembling the colonies from across the mountains, which seemed to be slowly losing their control over the Tennessean settlers. Now, before we dive into some of the political weeds, let me give you some context here. Spoiler alert! We become a state in 1796. There, just getting it out there, we all know it happened. But before this, the land to be known as Tennessee was very contested. Like I said earlier, the British government didn't want settlers across the mountains at all in hopes of appeasing the Cherokee natives that the white men had already displaced from the East Coast. Needless to say, the Cherokee were not thought highly of and often received the short end of the stick on trade deals. In fact, many records by the early settlers refer to Native Americans simply as savages to be exterminated, as their presence could devalue the price of land to the likelihood of violence. Many attacks occurred against both sides and many casualties were suffered. Unhappy with the lack of support they were receiving from North Carolina, the estimated 70 to 100 families in the East Tennessee, Washington County area formed the Watauga Association, a loose government that actually considered itself a territory independent from the colonies. In fact, President Theodore Roosevelt later called Watauga settlers the, quote, first men of American birth to establish a free and independent community on the continent, unquote. Teddy's kind of right. A mountain range away from anyone to tell them no to anything, the Wataugan Tennessean families created life for themselves on their own terms, and the pact held true for three years until 1775 when the Revolutionary War began. A man you may have heard of became quite the household name in those days. In Watauga, at least. John Severe is a man that I'm consistently impressed by, not only by his exploits, but by his character. We're going to stick with this guy for a while, as he not only helped pioneer many of the initial settlements, like the Watauga Association, but will be one of Tennessee's strongest advocates for statehood. When the time comes, you know. Despite Sevier obviously being memorialized through the counties and cities he's named after here in Tennessee, I'm sorry to say I wasn't too familiar with him. But this guy's like a Tennessee hero, so I'm going to give him the spotlight for a minute. Sevier grew up on the frontier with his father and brothers, learning the intricacies of the land business at a young age. One of his flaws, I suppose we could call it in retrospect, was his attitude toward the Native Americans of the area. He led many campaigns against Cherokee settlements and was renowned in the Watauga area for leading not only the offensive against the Indians themselves, but also the effort to receive protection from the colonies like North Carolina and Virginia. When the time came, he was well prepared to become a leader in one of the few battles of the Revolutionary War that managed to pique the interest of us Tennesseans, the Battle of Kings Mountain. Despite being a mountain, this wasn't on our turf at all. By 1780, in the throes of the war, the English army demanded that the Wataugans surrender and support their campaign against the revolting colonists. But it was pretty clear the British had lost touch with their subjects. Severe and many others had fought their way through nature, violence, and poor representation, and they decided it was time to take it to the streets. Freedom was worth it. Severe and several other commanders rallied men from all across the frontier and amassed an army of nearly 1,000 men near Watauga. The battle itself happened at Kings Mountain in South Carolina, where the ragtag volunteer militia, also called the Overmountain Men, marched across the Appalachians to meet more troops and face their British opponents. This proved to be a decisive victory for the budding Americans, as they killed and captured several high-ranking officers, deterring British forces from spreading further southwest. John Sevier returned home a war hero, having protected the Tennessee frontier once again from outside rule. The rest of the revolution rolled through without much more help from Tennessee. You may ask, but what about the volunteer state? That's us, right? Gavals! That's correct, but wrong war. I had to look it up too, but we actually earned that title during the War of 1812, and more notably during the Mexican-American War in the 1840s, when President Polk asked for 3,000 Tennessee volunteers and received 30,000. Pretty cool, but don't let me get us off track because a lot is about to happen fast. Think about how tangled the web of intrigue must have been for our country post-Revolutionary War. As soon as the Treaty of Paris was signed in 1783, effectively ending the war, colonies scrambled to take advantage of their autonomy. It's easy to get lost in the events of the formation of our country, but again, we're here for Tennessee, right? And Tennessee still isn't a thing at this point. In fact, we're more North Carolina than ever. As soon as the war ends in 1783, you know, North Carolina began selling off plots of Tennessee land to its soldiers as compensation for their service. But most of the lands east of the mountains in North Carolina proper, if you will, had already been claimed for decades. This is where North Carolina decided to get crafty with Tennessee. Before possession taxes could be calculated for the state's ownership of Western lands, North Carolina repaid and sold off as much of the land as they could, profiting immensely, then ceded all territories west of the mountains to the United States government, just in time to dodge paying the taxes. Yeah, like, basically said, we don't want this part of the state anymore, so not our problem, bye. A little shaken by the release, but certainly not stirred. The people of Tennessee decided to do what they knew how to do best, take matters into their own hands. August 24, 1784, just months after being released from North Carolina's influence, a convention was gathered to establish the state of Franklin, modeled closely after the colonies already in effect. Initially, John Sevier wasn't interested in being part of the movement for statehood, but upon realizing that it would go on with or without his support, he accepted the position of governor of the state of Franklin. They worked diligently for months, drafting a constitution to establish their independence, but were stomped out in November, when North Carolina once again claimed control of the lands that they had relinquished only a year earlier. Needless to say, North Carolina was not happy about the efforts to establish a new state. In April of 1785, Governor Alexander Martin of North Carolina demanded that the state disband and that those willing to comply would not be tried for treason. In response, Sevier and his associates sent an official application for statehood to the federal government. While a credible attempt, Franklin was denied statehood, and several prominent North Carolinians were soon elected on the promise of bringing Franklinites to justice for their betrayal. John Tipton, elected to the North Carolina State Senate in 1786, would prove one of the most formidable rivals for the statehood movement and led several raids against Franklin settlers from 1785 to 1787, which often resulted in violence and death. He would fight tirelessly, both physically and politically, to thwart any efforts made by Sevier toward independence. The United States Constitutional Convention gathered in Philadelphia in 1787. The drafting of the Constitution is a fairly staple point in history class, so we won't focus on it as much as we will the state of Franklin's response to the Constitution. As the Constitution was nearing its completion in 1788, so was Sevier's term as governor of Franklin. With a new federal government on the horizon, Sevier and the Franklinites decided to let the establishment crumble and finally turn their loyalty back towards North Carolina in hopes of being recognized in the new order. John Tipton, who was ever looking for ways to spoil Sevier's plans, had a judge draft him a warrant for Sevier's arrest, which he promptly carried out himself on October 10th, 1788. Sevier gave himself up without a fight and was hauled back across the mountains to North Carolina. As a testament to Sevier's popularity and evidence of Tipton's obvious personal vendetta, Sevier was not only released without a trial, but less than a month later, was elected as a state senator. In this position, he was one of the North Carolina delegates to vote to ratify the United States Constitution in November of 1789. Things finally seem to be stabilizing politically, but with the ratification of the Constitution, North Carolina once again releases control of the Tennessee lands to the United States. The federal government reorganizes these lands into the eloquently titled Territory of the United States South of the Ohio River. Catchy name, right? A North Carolina representative named William Blount was named governor of the TUSSOR in 1790 and spent much of the next three years mediating disputes between Native Americans and the steady flow of immigrants entering the Tennessee area. By 1793, The territory had far surpassed a population of 5,000, which meant that they could elect a legislature to represent themselves. And this only drove even more people in. I find it interesting to think about how many first-generation Tennesseans were born during this time, compared to how many immigrants would have moved over. But I digress. The population booms. Two more years go by, it's 1795, and Blount thinks it's time for a census. Representatives from all across the territory south of the Ohio River tallied their citizens and gathered for a convention on January 11th, 1796. By February 6, a complete state constitution was drafted and ready to be sent to the United States government for approval. Tanase, or Tanasi, was supposedly a Cherokee word for spoon, which had been adapted by the Americans when they created Tennessee County in modern-day Montgomery and Rutherford counties. They took the word Tennessee and gave it to their state, as it had already been in people's vocabulary for several years already. Before their petition was even approved, Severe returned to the political scene and is elected the first governor of Tennessee, and Blount is made a senator. Only two states had been accepted into the Union since the Revolutionary War, Vermont and Kentucky, so Tennessee didn't have much of a precedent to follow upon application for statehood. Apparently forward-thinking for its time, Thomas Jefferson would later say the Tennessee Constitution was the most Republican yet framed in America. On June 1st, 1796, George Washington signed the Constitution, making us the 16th member of the United States. Yes. Let's cool our brains down a little bit, shall we? Wait, what? No, there's no more. We made it. We're a state. Sorry, yeah, I know it's abrupt, but you still have questions you say? Why, that's excellent though, friend. You know, every date, location, and person I mentioned have their own ecosystem of histories and stories to tell. And let me tell you, dear listener, I had a hard time narrowing down what I thought were some of the finer points of our state's inception. That leaves the rest up to you. I encourage you to scratch the itch of curiosity, no matter what rabbit holes you may find yourself diving down. I've had a blast putting this together, and I thank you so much for taking the time to appreciate Tennessee with me. Information for how to contact me as well as a list of sources can be found in the show notes. If you're looking forward to learning more about Tennessee's place in the world, please share and subscribe so we can get others in on the fun and keep you in the loop too. I don't know about you, but this hurricane of an election season has me tripping over my own feet trying to keep up. But I love it. Tennessee is generally a pretty Republican state, with white guys leading the pack, and it looks like we'll probably vote for a white guy this election season too. In the next episode, I'll swerve on the white dudes and I'll talk with immigrants and other minority groups about what it means to them to be a Tennessean, some of the obstacles they face in our present day cultural climate, and what they'd like to see out of the 2016 election. Thanks again for listening. I'm Braden Weaver, and this has been Tennessee History Past, Present, and Future. I'll see you next time. Hey, let the music play. Rolling down in Tennessee time.